Section 9 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Scotland, Exile, and Restoration. Part 2. Golf, indeed, not being of the nature of vanity, was sanctioned, and a special guard was detailed to attend the king on the links. Nor is the authority altogether to be rejected which hints that other imperious lusts of the flesh were recognized. We cannot indeed vouch for Hume's story of familiarities of the committee of ministers appointed to reprove Charles for behavior so unbecoming a covenanted monarch, and of the exhortations of Robert Douglas upon the advisability of drawing the curtains over the windows whenever his majesty was disposed to amuse himself but elsewhere we learn with greater certainty of truth that having in the year sixteen fifty to the many fornications and adulteries which he then committed added the perpetration of an attempt upon a modest and virtuous lady he had incurred the general dissatisfaction of his best friends general dissatisfaction for the grossest indulgence of lust but insult and humiliation and the assurance of all the terrors of hell for any levity on the subject of the covenants in spite of these legalized distractions charles's life was a burden to him he believed himself moreover in personal danger it was quite possible that the western enthusiasts would endeavor to seize him and give him up to cromwell for a long time he had been planning a bold bid for liberty he knew that a large number of nobles gentlemen and soldiers driven out of the army were ready to welcome him among them on thursday october third a mixed body of engagers and cavalier royalists were gathered at the bridge of urn and he had promised to be with them on that day newborough's regiment of guards were to join them st johnston's was to be taken and the committee of estates secured at the same time middleton and other noblemen had raised forces in different places to join in the uprising of scottish as distinguished from covenanting feeling the prospect was a fair one and it was ruined for the time only by charles's imprudence among those who had been allowed to stay with him were buckingham and wilmot who had been won over by argyle long before and who practically were spies upon their master on wednesday evening charles confided his hopes for the morrow to them they induced him to relinquish the design for the moment and dr fraser was dispatched with the intelligence to his friends at the bridge of urn the reports which fraser brought back and the news that his household was to be dismissed en bloc and that his guard of horse was to undergo further purging once more decided charles and on october fourth under pretense of hunting he rode out of the town crossed the tay at a ferry met lauderdale near dundee and thence went on to the house of the earl of ailey next morning he rode on seven miles to clover in the glen of the south esk hoping to meet huntley and the aberdeen men here however he was found in a helpless situation by colonel montgomery who had followed with six hundred horse and who induced him to return without more ado this he did willingly enough since assurances had previously reached him from the committee on october sixth 
he was back at Perth, and the ill-advised and ill-executed start was at an end. An interview with the committee was followed by his declaration as a Christian that he had been surprised and deluded by evil counsel, and that when he went first out he had no mind to depart, and trusted in God that with the assistance of their prayers it would be a lesson to him all the days of his life. The committee dared not go farther. They were beginning to be seriously alarmed, and Charles's escapade had been a warning to them. The little leaven of common sense left in the army was beginning to work. The opinion was expressed and supported, both by Leslie and Argyle, that it might not be altogether displeasing to God if engagers who had become reconciled to the Kirk were again employed. When Leslie was sent against the insurgents, Middleton met him with a bond signed by their principal chiefs, a plea for national unity in face of the invader, and the issue of an act of indemnity meant the substitution of the national for the covenanting cause. Against all this, the Western enthusiasts, 3,000 men led by Colonels Carr and Strachan, fiercely protested. They refused to fight for the king until he had given evidence of repentance and had abandoned the malignants. The Committee of Estates now informed with the national feeling, but as in 1648, without the concurrence of the Assembly, formally condemned their remonstrance. More active measures were rendered unnecessary by Cromwell, who, wishing to have but one enemy before him, sent Lambert against Carr and Strachan. Lambert defeated them at Hamilton, and all Scotland, south of the Forth and Clyde, was thus in Cromwell's power, except Edinburgh Castle, which held out until December 4th. Once set in motion, the national sentiment rapidly gathered strength and speed. The ostracized royalists were readmitted into the army upon verbal consent to the covenants, and by December 13th the Kirk itself had given way but the well-worn forms and style were sedulously observed. When Charles opened Parliament at Perth on November 26th, he claimed God's favour on the ground that he had moved him to enter into a covenant with his people, a favour no other king could claim, while Parliament, as a concession to the Assembly, gladly acknowledged its members guilty of every sin charged against them. Fast days were appointed, and the nation was solemnly called upon to humble itself before God. Charles himself had again to mourn publicly for his own sins and those of his father and grandfather. He took his part in the farce with jaded but serene resignation. I think, he said, I ought to repent too that ever I was born. At length, on January 1st, 1651, the long-deferred coronation took place a sermon of interminable length from Robert Douglas on the limitation of the kingly power, with the usual excursus upon the sins of Charles's family, was listened to with becoming reverence. Once more, kneeling and lifting up his right hand, the king swore to whatever they chose to demand. To a running accompaniment of exhortations from Robert Douglas, Argyle placed the crown upon his head, the Earl of Crawford and Lindsay gave him the scepter, and then the practised actor closed this Judaic ceremony by begging the ministers that if in any time coming 
they did hear or see him breaking the covenant they would tell him of it and put him in mind of his oath the situation was perfectly defined when middleton the malignant was allowed to do penance in sackcloth at the same time that strachan the protester was excommunicated and delivered over to the devil hamilton returned to the court and argyle retired to the highlands argyle's hope of retaining his power by inducing charles to marry his daughter anne campbell was dissipated by the very decided negative of the queen to whom charles had referred the matter and from the repeal of the act of classes in june his influence completely disappeared meanwhile charles was rejoicing in his new freedom and was busily employed in collecting an army fortifying the fourth and consolidating the national feeling which ever since dunbar he had cleverly manipulated in april with leslie and middleton as lieutenants he was at the head of twenty thousand men a number largely increased by june admirably active and intelligent in all his great affairs but too forward to hazard his person in any attempt against the rebels was the character he rapidly acquired it is unnecessary to relate the strategy by which cromwell so outmanoeuvred the scottish forces that the desperate scheme of invading england leaving the enemy in the rear was the only one which offered a possibility of success hamilton although delighted that all the rogues have left us argyle and all of his party having refused to join the march that all his majesty are such as will not dispute his commands sorrowfully admitted that their one stout argument was despair but the knowledge that he was leaving scotland the country where he had led so intolerable a life a life of dreary repression of everything that was consonant with his nature sent charles over the border with a light heart three months later when he landed in france he told the duke of orleans that he would rather be hanged than ever again set foot in that hated land in the vain hope that lancashire would rally to his cause charles led his army southward by the western route cromwell followed hard on the east of the pennine chain harrison hung upon his flank and lambert with his cavalry harassed his rear the earl of derby alone joined him with a small force while his own folly in ostentatiously lodging in the houses of catholic adherents caused grave discontent among his ranks at shrewsbury he was defied by the parliamentary commander who addressed his refusal to surrender not to the king but to the commander-in-chief of the scottish army on august twenty second he reached worcester in desperate plight with but sixteen thousand wearied men he forthwith issued a manifesto in which he offered to settle religion according to the covenant promised arrears of pay to all who would desert from cromwell an act of oblivion to all except the regicides and members of the high court of justice and the retirement of the scots after the victory he hoped by this to appeal at once to presbyterians to any discontented men among the enemy and to the purely english feeling but it was as great a failure as was the order of a levy of all persons between the ages of sixteen and sixty two days later cromwell was upon him with nearly thirty thousand seasoned and disciplined troops on september third the town was attacked the issue was never in doubt 
and the only point of interest for us is how Charles bore himself. Burnet, after his manner, cast doubts upon his personal courage, and Buckingham, who was always untrustworthy, afterwards did the same. But all evidence of value goes far to refute them. We hear that descending from the cathedral tower, he placed himself at the head of his troops, and with conspicuous gallantry fell upon the ranks of the enemy. Shoot me dead, he is reported to have cried, rather than let me live to see the sad consequences of this day. An eyewitness of the fight, whose account must indeed be taken with the admission that it was reviewed and perfected on this side of the water, speaks of him as charging several times in person and with great success. Certainly a braver prince never lived, having in the day of the fight hazarded his person much more than any officer of his army, riding from regiment to regiment, and leading them on upon service with all the encouragement, calling every officer by his name, which the example and exhortation of a magnanimous general could afford. Showing so much steadiness and undaunted courage in such continued danger, that had not God covered his head and wonderfully preserved his sacred person, he must in all human reason needs have perished that day. It was not until dusk was falling and all was lost that the king made his way out of the north gate with Buckingham, Derby, Lauderdale, and Wilmot, and separating himself from the general rout with some sixty men, rode with all speed into the night. And then followed that wonderful flight of six weeks through a country swarming with soldiers, eager to earn the reward of a thousand pounds, offered for the capture of the tall man above two yards high, with dark brown hair scarcely to be distinguished from black. As a story of loyalty and devotion, of incessant danger and almost inexplicable escapes, it is one of intense interest, but it has so often been told in detail that it may well be left here, except to point out that amid all privations Charles's buoyant humour never deserted him. Whatever were his risks and escapes, we may be sure that fatigue, exposure, hunger, and the fear of the hunted animal were preferable to safety with the chance of another sermon from Robert Douglas. More than once his habitual light-heartedness brought him close to capture, and on each occasion his ready wit and self-possession served him well. Thus we hear from Colonel Gunter, who was present, how, when Charles was mistaken for a roundhead, his hair having been cropped close by the pendrels, he clinched the fortunate mistake by gravely rebuking his discoverer for his untoward habit of occasional swearing. At Bridgeport, where he acted as groom to Colonel Wyndham, the ostler accosted him with, You are welcome, I know you very well. Where did you know me, answered Charles? At Exeter. I lived two years in an inn there. With memory created by need, and so did I, said Charles, in the service of Master Porter. I am glad to have met with a countryman, but I see you are so busy that you have no time to drink with me. When I come back from London, we'll talk of old stories. On another occasion, when his horse had cast a shoe, and he had taken the animal to a forge, he asked the blacksmith for news. There is no news, replied the man, since the good news of the beating the rogues the Scotch, but he added he had not heard that that rogue Charles Stuart had been taken. 
if that rogue said charles unconcernedly were taken he deserves to be hanged more than the rest for bringing in the scots you speak like an honest man was the satisfactory reply at the inn at long marston charles in his character of servant went to the kitchen where he was at once set to wind the jack what countrymen are you said the maid when he showed his ignorance of the art that you know not how to wind up a jack only a poor tenant son of colonel lane in staffordshire said charles we seldom have roast meat and then we don't use a jack another incident deserves record for it was singularly recalled to charles's memory when he was on his deathbed while he lay concealed in moseley hall a secular priest called john huddleston afterwards a benedictine monk who had been instrumental in effecting his concealment placed in his hands a manuscript entitled a short and plain way to the faith and church which he read attentively and with apparent conviction more than thirty-three years later the same priest then one of the queen's chaplains was hurriedly conducted up the back stairs at whitehall to give to the agonizing king the last rites of that church whose tenets he studied for the first time under circumstances so strange you once saved my body gasped the dying man and now you are come to save my soul End of section nine